Okay, let's get started. So I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. This is welcome to an exit interview with my friend uh, Susan Fine. Uh, Susan Fine is the deputy assistant administrator at USAID's uh, Bureau for po Policy, Planning, and Learning. She's in the process of going through retirement, or almost are you finished with retirement. She's retired, so she was. So I'm going to use the term retirement in quotes. You know those big air quotes. <clears throat> So um, I think Susan's known to all. We'd have really, uh, I was really pleased with the RSVP turnout uh, for this. It was over 180 people, uh, and so I think it speaks to you know that Susan has a fan club, and I, I appreciate everybody coming after a, a late night last night. I know there's some baseball fans here, <clears throat> and um, I also know it was a, a big day. So uh, congratulations to all us Washingtonians. Um, so, I, but I thought it was really important that we have a conversation with Susan. I've, I've met Susan for the first time, my, my first trip to Africa in 2002. She was kind enough to host me in her home. Um, I learned a lot about AID. I learned a lot about Senegal. I learned a lot about Africa. Um, she she had she has really cool house guests. She had Yusu Ndour for dinner, the famous Senegalese musician. I was I thought that was pretty cool. She has she had wonderful children. Uh, spoke French and spoke Arabic and uh, just really, you know, wonderful people. And she, she's, uh, anyway, so, and she's had a really wonderful career at eight. And I thought it would be very appropriate to, to have her kind of help debrief us on kind of having an exit interview. I've done this with a number of other folks as well. So, Susan, come on up and let's, let's have a conversation. Please welcome Susan. How's, you, you, so you started as a child prodigy with AID <laughs> in the early 90s, yeah. 1992, right? That's correct. 1992. Yes. So how has UCAID evolved as an institution over the course of your career, and what recommendations do you have for AID? Wow. Okay. That's a... Um, Easy a question. A tough way to, right, tough way to <laughs> start off on a morning like this. But let me yes. first say just thank you very much, uh, Dan, for... Um, for this opportunity and for all the support that you provided me um, over the course of my career. Um, we did meet, yeah, fairly, it's still I can't a believe while it. ago. A while and, ago. Um, yeah, that was in the early days of when we were starting to figure out how to work with the private sector. Yes, um, yes. When you were with the, um, with the GDA. GDA. Yes. So, um, anyway, so I think um, reflecting over the last 30 years, um, I do think that USAID is uh, definitely a stronger institution than it was when I joined the agency. Um, I say that, though, with some caveats. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the agency's been through some ups and downs uh, over the, the last few decades. Um, you know, the, the positive thing is the incredible bipartisan support that there is for the agency, for the work that we do. Um, I actually, I don't think that anybody, well, there are some Still some people who talk about merger into the State Department, but I don't think that it's really a serious uh, proposition. Yeah, Errol and I helped stop that. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. You're all welcome. Right, right. yes. So. Um, and, you know, the, the, the recognition of the role that the agency plays in our uh, national security, um, I think, is, is pretty well established now. So, so I feel like we don't have an existential threat anymore, um, which is important. Yes. Um, now, that said, you know, some of the things that have happened over the last uh, few decades, um, particularly the, um, the dissolution of the, the policy and budget function um, in the 
in the mid-2000s, um, really dealt a serious blow to our capacity as an agency. And I think that, in, that we're, we have recovered to some extent, but I think we're still suffering um, from some of the, the capacity that we lost um, during that time. And of course, the fact that um, the creation of the Office of the Director of Foreign Assistance, or F, at the State Department, has really fundamentally changed the relationship that we have with the State Department. Um, and I don't think that it's realistic to expect that to change radically um, going forward. So, um, but I would say that, um, you know, in terms of strategic planning, we've come a long way, particularly um, with Administrator Green's um, self-reliance, uh, journey to self-reliance and the metrics. I think that the metrics have um, given us uh, an important kind of um, standardization, uh, something to look at because, you know, we've struggled with this issue of how do For you, decades. how do you, at the same time, have a strategic plan for a country that's unique and specific to that country, but also something that somehow is has a degree of standardization so that when the Congress and other stakeholders here um, look at it, like that there's some way of, of uh, making sense of it so that it's not all completely individualistic um, uh, you know, strategies. So I think that the, the the self-reliance metrics are helpful as long as we don't take them um, as sort of dogma and we recognize that it's a starting point in the process. And I think this is very much you know, what um, the administrator and um, Jim Richardson and Chris Maloney and PPL have, have been, um, you know, this is the way we've talked about it. So as long as it continues to be implemented that way, that's good. Um, I think where we haven't um, made as much progress is in um, kind of resuscitating the project design expertise in the agency and the evaluation uh, and knowledge management capabilities. Um, at the field level, um, knowledge uh, evaluation is happening and that's great. Where we haven't progressed sufficiently in my view is we haven't gotten to that sort of agency level evaluation uh, and knowledge management function and really strengthening that. Now that is one of the things that's supposed to be part of the new policy resources and performance bureau, um, which I'm very excited about. Um, I understand that the CN still has not been uh, lifted for that uh, final piece of the reorganization and um, so all of you who are involved in advocacy, I really hope that you Put that in that your you inbox. Will, yes, I really hope, I mean, th this is I'm such looking at a couple critical of you, piece. Looking at a couple of you who do this for a living and say, put that on your to-do list, please. Creating PRP is really a critical piece of further strengthening uh, USAID as an agency. Project design, I would say, the reason, now, I, to be candid, I started my career as a project development officer, so, you know, you can you say that I'm, you can say that I'm biased, um, <laughs> but I really do that be believe that project design is fundamental for so many, for, yeah, for just putting together and implementing um, development activities that that produce results. And if you look at uh, some of the reforms, um, like uh, you know the new partnership initiative, like uh, private sector engagement, to really operationalize those reforms, the place where you do that is when you're designing the, the project or the yes. partnership. Um, and I think that we haven't done a good enough job in really um, cultivating those skills in uh, new officers as they come into the agency. Um, 
So, yeah. And then I would say policy leadership, um, you know, the U.S. government is the, by far the largest provider of overseas development assistance, or ODA. Um, we, have, we have come quite a way in terms of strengthening policy leadership. Um, however, I think that we could do more. Um, and I'm not just talking about the policy function within the PPL Bureau or the new Policy Resources and Performance Bureau. I'm talking about policy leadership sort of across the agency. Um, you know, there, there is, we've been doing a lot, but I, but I feel that we're not, we're punching under our weight uh, in terms of policy leadership kind of in the international arena. So um, I would, you know, love to see in the next, uh, the next administration um, really making uh, that capability um, even more robust because I think that there is, there's receptivity to it on the part of our uh, we, of other development actors. I would, they they we, we want need, U.S. government. We need American leadership. leadership. We need American leadership. Yeah. So um, and you know, sort of underlying all of these functional things, I, I do have a concern about where we are in terms of um, foreign service staffing in particular. Um, you know, as I'm sure everybody is well aware, um, there was no hiring in, in 2017. There was one foreign service class, very small, that was brought in in 2018. There's another one, very small, brought in this year. I understand that there's, on the books, a plan to hire 150 for next year. Um, but that's just not keeping up with, you know, the overall trend on foreign service staff is, is a downward trend. Um, and I think, you know, when I joined the agency in the 90s, um, we went through a similar thing in the mid-90s. The mid there was no hiring for several years. And we are seeing the effects of that no hiring carrying through to today. Because now in missions, you're having a situation where, where missions are chronically understaffed. And they're always dealing with major gaps for long periods of time. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be you would have some, you know, things would happen, you would have some gaps. Um, but it, it's now become chronic. And so I really am concerned about, um, about the staffing. Um, and I think that it's something that we have to keep an eye on. And I know that Congress is, has been uh, putting a lot of pressure on the, on the agency uh, around that. But um, yeah, it is a concern because if you don't have people on the ground, in the field in particular, um, who have the skills and expertise, and you know, we need people who can engage with the private sector. All this talk about you know working closely with the private sector. If we don't have the people that have those skills, have the people who can yeah. work with the de new development finance corporation, if yes. we don't have that, you know, we're gonna have we're, a problem. It's not gonna play out the way we would like it to. I agree with that. I think I completely agree. I think this issue of staffing. I, when I was at Aid, when when the budgeting and planning function went to F. I thought it was as if AID got a lobotomy. And I thought it was, it's almost like a partial or a full lobotomy. It was a terrible error. I think we've kind of gotten part of the lobotomy undone, but I think it's an error that, and I think also this issue of staffing, I agree with you, I think it's a problem. I also worry, I've done a number of events here on the staffing for the future of development. I have my own biases about this. I think my thesis is we've got 100 developing countries, 70 are going to go the way of South Korea. I know I'm oversimplifying, but just, just work with me. 
And then there's about 30 fragile and conflict-affected states, maso menos, and depends on which of the eight, eight versions of fragile and conflict-affected states. We use the OECD or the World <laughs> Bank, right? There's eight of these. Yeah. But maso menos, there's 30 of these, right? We're going to be stuck with the 30. We're going to get out over the next 20 years uh, over many of those 70, Mas more or less. I mean, not all of them, but we're going to get out a lot of them. And we're going to be stuck with the uncongenial ones. And I just think we're going to need a difference. In addition to working with the private sector, I think we're going to have to, I, I'm of the school of Andrew Natsios that says that we're going to need folks to do extended tours in really yeah. tough places. Yeah. We're probably going to need people who know, speak really obscure languages. We're going to need people who are comfortable kind of sort of around the military. Now, I'm going to say something else that generally generates kind of, a, they don't like this, but I think we're going to need ex-military people who get exposed to development through development charm school. Now, again, many people in the development community don't like me saying that, but I just think <clears throat> that's the future of development. It's going to be fragile and conflict-based states. If you look at where the poor are, most of them are going to be in these tough, awful places. So I just think we're going to have to get ahead of that. And I don't think hitting the pause button for two years or three years at a time on hiring, that's not helping. No. That's, not, that's not helpful. Um, I do think we're going to have to have an adult conversation about it, and maybe we're going to have to look at, you know, I mean, the Navy SEALs do 14 years and you retire after that. Maybe we would do two seven-year tours in some awful place <laughs> and learning some oddball language where you click, uh, your throat clicking or whatever, and you can retire <laughs> after 14 years. I know some people yeah. are, you know, their people's heads explode when I say this, but I think that's coming. I think that's coming. So. And we're going to need people, I mean, these, uh, the Douglas North, you know, talks about that, you know, there's open access orders and only a handful of countries ever achieve open access. They, these countries' tough places operate on a very different kind of a logic. They're not Hamiltonian democracies. You need people who have, can gain trust. I think that's like a five or six year thing. There have been people in the aid system who lit, served in Sudan or South Sudan for many years, and they were sort of more important than the U.S. ambassador. We're going to need lots of people like that. And you all know what I'm talking about. You don't have to agree with right. me, but you all know what I'm talking about. Okay. Right. So, okay. So, what about, um, I'm going to talk about knowledge management. So, who reads that stuff? Like, who reads m and &E? I mean, I, I'm all for m and &E. And I, the, the, the RCT, what are they called? R Randomized Controlled Trials, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Cadillac. You can get a Nobel Prize now for doing RCTs. Uh, the, the gold standard is you're supposed to rule of thumb, you're supposed to spend 5% of your project mm -hmm. funding on M&E, right? That's the rule of thumb, right? Right? I'm, going, I'm guessing we don't spend 5%. But Probably I've seen not. studies, yeah. I mean, we write reports and I hope people read our stuff. I hope you all read my stuff because I think it's really interesting. Some of it's obscure, but I think most of it's important. I've seen studies on the World Bank website where you post reports and zero people download them. Yeah. So, so how, do people read, if we do a, one of these studies right. that you guys, that we hire for, A, do people read them in the agency? And who reads this stuff? So I think it's a good question. And I think this, this is why I think it's super important that we um, develop a much stronger agency-wide uh, knowledge management function. Um, when I, when I joined the agency, when I was mm. a young project design officer, when you started to develop a new program, one of the first things you did is you could send requests to the Center for Development Information CDI, and Evaluation, CDIE. CDIE, and they would send you a package of 
and not and of all the relevant evaluations and studies, not just aid ones, but other ones. But then what was even more important is they would send you kind of a synthesis. Like they would do the work of figuring out what are some of the key lessons from these. Because, and, and now, because we've been talking about these staff you know, gaps and you know, people are so stretched in the field, you're right, they don't have time for the most part to sit down and read you know, three or four evaluations. So they need the, that somebody who's gonna synthesize that information. Give you and the say, cliff notes. Exactly, here's the cliff notes and if you wanna delve into it more, you know, here are the studies or whatever. We don't really do that now. And it's a huge waste because we have a lot that we, can, that we do learn from our programs, but by and large, that learning stays within the country. Or to some extent, I think some of the sectors, um, like I think the democracy and governance sector, health sector, are doing a decent job of you know, trying to, to, share. to share that information and whatnot. So it's not that it's not happening at all, but it, it definitely needs to be improved. Um, but we, have, we cannot rely on, as you say, you know, people, you know, a health officer or a, you know, ag officer somewhere sitting and, you know, taking the, they don't have the time, they don't have the luxury to go and read all the work that's been done on this. So we really need to have a much more efficient and um, sophisticated uh, knowledge management system. Now, I just would just say for the record, like if AID hires me to do an evaluation, it'd be really awesome and everyone will read it and it'll be, everyone will digest it for sure. I'm not sure that will happen, but I just think that we have a real problem in these issues of who's got the time, yeah. how long these things are. I mean, some of these things are like 500 pages. Yeah. I read some evaluation on, on, on uh, and it was a very finely well done thing. I read it on enterprise funds. There's like 500 pages because each of them, they said oh, the methodology was I'm going to write about every single one. And then each enterprise fund got to send a grumpy letter back saying I didn't like what you said about me. And so I actually sat, if I, had I spent my Christmas vacation one year, I read it, the whole thing. I think I'm the only crazy person that probably read the thing. They, everyone in the fund read everyone that said the mean things about their fund. They did read that. But I mean, 500 pages, who's got the time for that? So I think that's a problem. I also think McKinsey has knowledge networks. They thrive on knowledge networks. I'm sure we don't have, we never have enough operating expense to have conferences, right? So some of this is about informal networks. I think the health community has a lot more of this and maybe the democracy community, sub-communities. But if we frown on getting people together or it's not seen as a good thing, I just think we have to have a variety of ways. The World Bank struggles with this. They've tried different things. What is your guess about how much we spend on programming, on program, is it one percent on M and E? Do you think on knowledge? No, it's more, it's more than that. Um, okay, I, I would say it's probably somewhere in the I don't know agency wide, maybe four four percent. Like, I, mean, I mean, I would say that's a lot. Probably not more than five percent. Well, I can't um, imagine. Now, just so you, so I want to address this because there is um, first of all, I think. There's tools that we have now that we didn't have before, like artificial intelligence, that can make the, the knowledge management process a lot more efficient. Um, also, um, we have a, a- We have the interwebs. A, we have a partnership <laughs> with, a, with, with a number of other donors who are really interested in this whole issue of, of uh, collaboration and learning. Um, the World Bank is one of the partners, uh, UNDP, um, uh, DFID, uh, I'm leaving somebody out. But anyway, so we have, there's, a a group of folks um, that uh, 
PPLs representing the USAID in it, but who are really sort of seized with this issue of how do we do a better job as development agencies in, in learning and knowledge management and we're you know, sharing, um, sharing approaches and experiences and whatnot. So um, yeah, and again, um, we need the new PRP Bureau um, to help make this happen. So, so let me just push just a little bit further. Should we be making little movies? Like instead of writing a 500 page report, couldn't we make like a five minute short video? Like we do this, we have a whole mm -hmm. AV team and I know it's kind of rubbish because it's not, it's not seen as substantial or that's not robust. But I, I, what I've, you know, my CEO, I'll do this report, I'm really proud of, he said, Dan, maybe 100 people are gonna download this thing. But if you do this video, we'll get 5,000 downloads. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think you have to be um, cognizant of how people take in information today. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the character of our workforce is um, changing. Gen you know, we, Z, millennials. We have a lot of, yes, people who are more accustomed to uh, consuming information um, in that manner. So absolutely, that has to be part of the way that you do it. Um, I, I know it's kind of like in college, if you said, I watched the Shakespeare play on film, didn't count and you got into big trouble with the English teacher if you did that. Yeah. You had to read it. I know that, but I think we need right. to think about different Absolutely. kinds of products because I think, I think we, we need to think about how we democratize information on, right. on this issue. Let, let me just let me push on something else. You, there are two other things you raised that I thought were really interesting. Um, I worry that, and I think this has gone, I think since the famous RIF, the reduction in force in the, in the 90s, has, has AID outsourced its thinking on program design to the bandits and the NGOs? And some of my best friends are bandits, and some of my best <laughs> friends are NGOs, and I used to cheer SID, which right. brings everybody together, and I'm using bandits as a term of love. I'm coming from a place of love on that. Right. But are you, have we outsourced our thinking? So I think we definitely did. For um, for a considerable period of time, and you know, another point that I wanted to make was, um, you know, one of the one of the implications, quite frankly, of of that riff, um, among other things, was we uh, we stopped using um, a wider variety of implementing mechanisms, um, be, and in part because some of those implementing mechanisms were staff intensive. So, like. Um, there were other reasons for it as well, like non-project assistance, the Hill didn't like it very much. Um, but uh, we did have, when I joined the agency, a, we did use a much broader array of implementing mechanisms than I think um, we use now. And um, you know, the, the staff limitations, I think, drove us in the direction yes. of focusing on grants and contracts. Um, and we did do, you know, again, it's, it's back to the staffing, right? If you have to do a project design and you're the you're you know one person in the program office and you have like one person in the technical office who's available and you need all this technical expertise and whatnot to to do the design process, you have to you have to get help. Um, and I think we went way too far in terms of contracting it out, um, but I do believe that since PPL was established, um, and um, uh, and we started hiring under the Development place. Leadership Initiative. I think you know, and we have a very robust suite of uh, training on on activity project activity design. Um, so I think I think that it's we've. I wouldn't agree that we totally contracted out. No, I, okay. I, I think that. Um, but you know, it's a balance, and it's it's. 
you know, mission staff are constantly trying to, you know, figure out how to allocate their time and their resources. So um, I, I, I just think in these tougher places where we're going to be forced to go, we're going to need a lot of smart AID people to do program design. Like I don't, I think we're going to have to have very capable foreign service officers to do that kind of work. It can't be done by the development ecosystem, and I've written lots of nice things about the development ecosystem and <clears throat> um, saying it's a strategic asset of the United States, but ultimately we need, this is, has to be an inherently government function, I think. Well, and if we want to, um, if par partnership is now really how we should be thinking about things. In fact, um, this is not my original idea, but I think we, instead of talking about projects, we should be talking about partnerships all the time. With governments or everybody well, every, in the private I sector, mean, we should, we military. don't do anything by ourselves anymore. No. We're always doing it with some partners. And so we should, but to develop partnerships, you need to develop trust, right? Okay. And so you can't, and you need to develop relationships with the other you know, the other actors in the partnership, whether they're local or international. Um, often I think it's gonna be a mix of those, um, private sector, civil society, uh, foundations, whatever. Um, and so you do need, you can't just bring in a consultant to build that relationship. Because no. to make a partnership work, it's, it, a partnership is a relationship, right? You need, a princip you need principles so, to So you've trust. gotta have people who are kind of there and you know, and they're on an ongoing basis to build that relationship, to build the credibility. And um, so, you know, you can have consultants come and provide certain, you know, specific kinds of technical yes. expertise or do certain types of analyses that inform the, you know, the structure and the, the content of the partnership, but you're gonna have to have people on the ground. If you want good, productive, impactful partnerships, you need those people who, who, who understand the environment and are developing and maintaining relationships. And a lot of that is our foreign service nationals. Um, they're, they're absolutely our backbone um, in terms of doing that. But for reasons that I think everybody can appreciate here, no. you know, we also need American officers who are part of that equation. We need Team America. Yeah. Okay, so just let me just go a little bit further on development diplomacy. So. We have to do a lot of stuff. There's the Major League Baseball Commission that Ambassador Michael used to run called the DAC, mm -hmm. right? So there's, I don't know, 30 members. So it's 30. a multilateral fora. Uh, that, I think, matters. So the French get to count uh, French lessons as part of foreign aid because they, changed, they got the rules to change that, right? Um, the, I think, so playing in those kind of sandboxes is a really important skill. It may not be exactly what some people who sign up to join AID need to want to do at first, but it's a really necessary function. There's lots of debates on what, how do we count development finance. There's something called, there's ODA and there's something called OOF, and there's some other thing. Other official flows. Yeah, there's OOF, but there's another <laughs> one too, the TUPD or some TUD, TUD t something. Anyways, oh, there's, there's- A TOSSD. Total official Tossed. support for sustainable development. Something like that. So anyway, so, so the point is, this is, this is a changing landscape. Yeah. I worry, uh, I'm broadly worried about American winning. So I agree with the Trump administration's national security strategy, which says we're going to fight and win in multilateral forum. So the, the four presidents of the regional development banks are coming open in the next 12 months and looking at Sarah saying, Sarah, 
So Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, EBRD, and IDB all come up in the next 12 months. I'm not losing any sleep about the Asian Development Bank because we got, I'm sure Japan's got that well in hand and it's going to be fine. As long as, you know, as long as we're pushing back against China, like, I'm good. African Development Bank, he's up for re-election. Even if I wanted, to, I think we don't have enough shares. If we wanted to get rid of him and change him for like a friend, he's an Anglophone. They kind of switch between Francophone, Anglophone. We're kind of conflicted. It depends on who you ask. We're kind of conflicted about him. <clears throat> we don't have the shares. We, we'd have to put a coalition, the willing together. So I'm saying all this to say there's, there's a series of other things that are up. We lost in 2014 a fight on air traffic controllers and the Chinese national got it. And so when the Taiwanese wanted to join, the Chinese national said, no thanks. So the Taiwanese are not part of it. So this is just a, a Trump administration thing. We, we don't, I think, as a country do well on kind of playing these kind of these intrigues. We're not good at intrigues. We're not good at kind of coalition building in this way. And some, you know, some administrations are better than others. It, this kind of soft diplomacy, it's reflected in development. The World Food Program boss, we just lost the FAO. Who's the new head of the FAO? Chinese National. So you all know that the World Food Program was spun out of the FAO. So like the board chair of the FAO is the Chinese. So David Beasley's new boss, the Chinese National. The World Food Program controls all the node of all the global logistics for the world, sort of the UN system. You can like it. You don't have to like it. I don't like it. Okay, It's not good. So we got to play. This development diplomacy stuff is part of a larger conversation about how we play in the multilateral system because they're eating our yeah. lunch. Right. The, we're the good guys, okay? They're eating our lunch. So we got we to gotta up our game. And so a piece of the corner of this stuff is in the development space. We, I'm, I sent out, if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can read my op-ed about, about the EBRD. Again, there's an alphabet soup of these organizations, EBRD. Um, somebody made stupid loose talk uh, at a G20 meeting and said the United States might sell its shares in the EBRD. Let me tell you something, we're not selling our shares in the EBRD. But someone st stupidly decided that was like a thing, and it's not a thing. And so the Europeans, I've had three dozen Europeans come to me and say, oh, I heard you're going to sell your shares. Well, good, because we want to turn the EBRD, which is about Central and Eastern Europe, foreign, former Soviet Union, uh, we want to turn to a climate change Africa bank for the European Union. We're going to buy your shares, okay? Is that, are you good with that? No, no, we're not good with that. Okay, but that's, that's, that's real because of us by not playing it. So I think development, we need American leadership. I can think it's health or food or stabilization, uh, science, technology, and development. I could think of 10 issues where what you talked about on development diplomacy, but it's not, I, if I want to grow up and become a mission director or someday I want to become an ambassador, one of these kind of these fragile, when I grow up as an aid foreign service officer, my guess is I want to grow up to be a mission director, have a mission director career, be an ambassador in one of these tough places, or I, I want to go run an NGO, right? Masamenos, right? Does this, am I, is this career enhancing to play the development diplomacy game today at AID? Like if I say, hey, mission director from India, hey, Aaron McKee, I want you to come, who I love, I'm a huge fan of Aaron McKee, hey, Aaron McKee, come back, I want you to lead the, the process on redefining OOF at the DAC. Is that career enhancing for our senior foreign service officers? How do we, because yeah. this is a problem at the IFC, like we have lots of public goods problems in the DFI sector and they're all deal people. Right. They, when they grow up, they want to go run an emerging markets private equity fund. They don't want to be an ambassador to a fragile and conflict vacant state. They want to go start EMP or ECP. They have all these names for these funds and get OPIC to fund it. So they don't want to do the public goods problems that I've been doing here. 
So is this, is this career enhancing? Because I think if we want to get leadership, we have, to, we have to align the interests of our career folks to say, I'm actually going to go and spend right. six months fiddling at the DAC, fighting and dying on the hill of redefining OOF. So I can say it was career enhancing for me. Um, you know, I came back uh, to Washington in, um, what was it, let's see, uh, 2016, to be the head of the Office of Development Cooperation. Yes which is the office that, that does, does this, this development diplomacy stuff. Yes. And we work with the DAC, and we represent at the UN, and we go to the G20 development working group meetings. Yes. Honestly, as a career foreign service officer, of course I knew what the DAC was. I knew a little bit about the DAC. I knew nothing about the, the role that we played in the G20. I didn't know a lot about the UN, you know, UNGA, what happens, you know, the whole... Um, Working with um, state IO on you know the policies of those uh, organizations, but I found it fascinating. As I got into it, I was like, "Wow!" And and you know this is also the office that deals with our kind of bilateral relationships with other development partners, um, other donors, kind of at a at a corporate level. Um, and I thought this this I actually got into it. Um, and you know some of the stuff at the DAC, maybe it sounds arcane, but as you say, it is a forum where there's a huge opportunity for U.S. leadership, and there's a, I believe there's a hunger for it. And when we step back, and we all feel we, it. We there, you know, it gets the void gets filled by others, but not necessarily in a way that we want. And you know, when we're not providing leadership at the DAC or in the UN or at the G20, basically what we're doing is we're fighting bad ideas. I totally agree um, with that. I and, totally agree with that. You know, um, you know, you were talking about China and you know, concerns about China. We did use, I mean, not just we, uh, US, USAID and the development working group, but also in the infrastructure working group this past year, really focused with, under Japan's presidency, really, really focused on trying to um, have a definition of quality infrastructure um, that incorporates things like life cycle costs and you know the debt issues and whatnot. And believe me, it's China, really, really important. China did not like it. They were very I unhappy. They and fought I like it. tooth and <laughs> nail, good. right? So now, let's think about 2020. The U.S. has the G7 presidency. If we want to push back on China. We have to work with our G7 partners in across the board. We have to work with them in the G7. The G7 countries provide 75% of ODA. Are we right? going to have a development so, track at the G7? Um, well, that's a question. I mean, the development has usually not played a very prominent role in the G7 other than food security. Food security has been kind of a, a strong suit, um, but there, there isn't a formal track for development the way there is in the G20. Um, and, um, and I know that um, this, I, I this administration is, is, you know, wants to have a very a slimmed down, slimmed down. A slimmed down agenda. I've had three different yeah. members of the G countries from the G7 come to me and say, so where, how are we going to talk about these things? And I'm worried. I think it is a huge opportunity. Um, and we've got, to, if we want to be pushing back on China's approach in development, we can't do it our, by ourselves, even though we have the DFC now, but you know, that's going to take enough. a long time to get up and running. But if, we, if you think about it, Dan, look, if you take the power of 
the other G7 members, um, who some of them have really, uh, you know, really strong development finance institutions, um, I, and there is some of this. This is happening. I know that, um, you know. Um, the, the Asia Bureau and, and PPL and uh, others are working with Japan, um, with the EU, um, and the Europe, the Europe and Eurasia Bureau on, on trying to, on some kind of countering China type programming, although I know we don't like to say it in that way, but that's pretty much what that, it is. I like saying um, it that way. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, there is a little bit of that happening, but it, it just seems to me that it could happen on a much, much larger scale. We're going to need a much we, more. If we want to be able to make a case to present a, an alternative to these developing countries that have legitimate needs for, you know, for development financing, we have to be able to do it as a group. And I mean, I can say this now because I'm no longer in it part of the administration, I'm no longer a public <laughs> official. Um, the attitude of the current administration about partnering, um, working with allies, you know, working in multilateral institutions has not been helpful um, and has really undermined our ability to do these things. And I think one of the challenges for future administrations is gonna be to rebuild that that credibility that we have had, um, because we can't do this stuff alone. We no. really can't. Um, so, uh, you know, with the DAC, um, I do think that the DAC has. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, the DAC, it's just ossified, and you know, it's it's you know, living in the past." Um, there's a um, there's a new DAC chair um, who is very energetic, and she has a great vision. Um, and I think that they've, they've passed, um, one of the most important things that they've done is they've um, passed the, um, adopted um, the rule on the Humanitarian Development Peace Nexus, um, which is really charging all of the DAC members to, to, to move forward on this whole issue of, of you know, the development humanitarian nexus, resilience, um, addressing conflict and fragility, um, working, you know, in a joint way. Um, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the good practices um, that, and in the having that DAC recommendation in place also will encourage, you know, sharing of, of information and experiences among DAC members. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, another thing that uh, that I've been involved in and that I feel passionately about is is the whole resilience agenda um, because we just have to find ways to you know strengthen the resilience of these communities that are so vulnerable like in places like the Sahel and and elsewhere because there will not be enough humanitarian aid um, particularly as uh, population growth increases, you know, c continues, and as climate change impacts uh, increase, we've got to find ways to build resilience. And so, I think we can use the, um, you know, the kind of the impetus of things like the the DAC recommendation um, as a way to to create pressure on our on ourselves um, to really make progress in these areas. So let me, I could ask you, I've got about 10 other questions I want to ask you, but I want to make sure we hear from our friends in the audience. So, okay, as you reflect upon your 30 years of public service at aid, what are some of your memorable career successes and what are your biggest failures? Failure. <laughs> um, 
Uh, wow. Um, you know, when they, um, it, when you go through the retirement course uh, that the for the State Department and USAID uh, Foreign Service, they make you sit down and and think about your your biggest accomplishments um, because then presumably because you're going to have to then go out and like sell yourself for whatever it is that you want to do next. And I have to say, it was hard. It was a hard thing to like hone in on 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 that. I mean, I feel. I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had and done the things that I've done. And it wasn't really an easy thing for me to say, oh, yeah, this is my biggest accomplishment. Um, but one thing, so one, but I had to do the work. So um, one of the things that, that I really feel good about, um, and just because it showed the power of our team working together with our partners, was. Um, being able to deliver the technical support for the referendum on self-determination in, in southern Sudan. Um, and I certainly didn't do that all by myself. Um, I was, at the time, the head of the Juba um, office, so the deputy mission director, Bill Hammock, was the director, mm. um, covering both um, Sudan, Khartoum, and, and southern Sudan. Um, and we had you know, a fin uh, an amazing uh, team in the, in the mission. Um, we, we worked with UNDP, with um, the EU, uh, UK, Norway. Um, so there were a lot of players in it. But you know, at the time that I arrived in Juba, it was um, six months before the referendum was supposed to take place. And the whole preparation was way, way behind schedule. And it was because of political stuff. You know, the government in Khartoum putting blockages right, in right. place, whatever. Um, so, and there were other people who were dealing with the political stuff. That wasn't my job. But my job was to work with our team to make sure that we delivered the technical support. And there's not time to go in. I should write about this someday. Because the heroics the pe that people did and the creativity that people used to overcome obstacles that arose on almost a daily basis. You know, imagine Southern Sudan, there's no roads there. And you have to get figure out how to get ballots printed in ballot boxes and stuff, and people trained way out in places that like, you can't even get to. Um, I mean, it was, it was amazing. And you know, we, we did it as the team. The team did it, um, and it was, I mean, it was a very proud moment. It's Obviously, inspiring. what's happened in southern Sudan since then is heartbreaking. Um, but that particular thing, I think, was really um, one of my proudest moments. Um, in terms of failures, I think um, you know my failures are um, in terms of not well. It took me a long time to figure out how to um, how to mobilize change and reform in Washington, um, and I was in a position in um, when I was in the COO's office in the late 2000s um, where you know I tried to do that. I think. I didn't, um, I didn't do it as well as I could. I hadn't figured out how to really work kind of across the bureaucracy um, and build a consensus, um, you know, to make that happen. So, um, but I like to think that I learned from that, um, and that you and use some of that experience um, when I was in PPL. Um, when um, Administrator Green and Jim Richardson came along, and you know we really tried to 
work with them on the, self the journey of self-reliance and, and make sure that the reforms, the, the basic concept was implemented in a way that made sense um, from a development practitioner uh, standpoint. So, um, and I know Sarah, Sarah's been working on this issue of the journey of self-reliance at CGD as well, so. Yep. Yes, we've had conversations. Good, good. <laughs> All right, so I wanna hear from this audience. There's a lot of thoughtful and opinionated people in this audience, so <laughs> raise your hands. Otherwise, I'll keep asking her questions, so this is your chance if you wanna ask a question of Susan Fine, my, my friend up here. Come on, I'm gonna bunch them together World Bank style. Mm -hmm. So let's get a couple of them, please. So if you wanna ask questions, now's the moment. This woman behind, and then anyone else? Okay, 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 these three. Great, thanks very much. My name's Jason Singer. I had the pleasure and privilege of working for Susan in PPL. Uh, I'm now currently the Vice President for USAID for the American Foreign Service Association oh, for okay. at least the next couple of years, but still a Foreign Service Officer. I wanna go back to, thanks again for having this, by the way, it's incredibly valuable for everyone, to the title of the session, Evolution as an Institution. Uh, as everyone knows, there's a transformation slash reorg going on right now. The mantra is our people are our most important asset. We're down foreign service officers. Uh, CSIS has written a lot about the humanitarian aspects of this, yet if you look at the new bureaus, you still don't have career foreign service officers in most of the field positions for those bureaus. Mm. So I guess, Susan, from your perspective, now that you're on the outside and maybe a little bit more free to speak, <laughs> what is the optimum number and staffing pattern and role of foreign service officers? Because depending on who you ha speak to and the number of beers, they could say, we, we don't need a foreign service act anymore. We, right, we so could just do whatever. So let's bunch these together. The, the woman behind you. Hi, Angela Pashayan. I'm a PhD student at Howard University, um, and I'm also a CSO. Um, question, and this is really hypothetical. If you had uh, $200 million, uh, where would you use it in USAID? Mm. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Uh, Tom Stahl, another retired USAID person. Um, as part of the evolution, I think you worked at a regional mission and the role of regional missions has evolved a lot and in a way related to I think the relationship between the field and Washington and then the role that regional missions kind of play in there I wonder what are your uh, sort of reflections upon that and what do you see as the role of regional missions uh, moving forward good okay okay and this gentleman here Thanks for your presentation. I was actually in your retirement class. I recently <laughs> retired. I'm an engineer yeah. by training many years overseas and had a little bit of an interface with F. I would be curious to hear what's your take on the future evolution of how you better align the strategy and the budget of the development mm. side with the diplomacy side? Because let's be honest, they don't align. And it's the only time they ever align is if you have a good ambassador and a good mission director. It's, and it's, it's unfortunate. Hmm. Wow. Pretty thoughtful questions. <laughs> Good, okay. <laughs> All right, um, so let's see. Foreign service officers, uh, reorg. Um, uh, I have to say, well, I do believe, as I made it pretty clear, I feel, I feel quite strongly about um, the pol policy resources and performance uh, bureau being stood up in, in part because 
Um, it will, I do believe that it will have an impact on better aligning strategy and budget and creating a stronger linkage between strategy, budget, and policy. Um, and so um, I, I think that's, that has been a weakness um, uh, even since we created uh, BRM, uh, the budget uh, office. Um, and so um, I, I think that that's a really pivotal piece of, of the reorganization. Um, uh, I, I, I'm also really supportive of the creation of the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance. Um, I think that will help with the whole resilience effort. Um, you know, um, some of the other pieces, I guess, I feel less um, attached to. Um, and um, in terms of the question, do we need foreign service officers anymore? Um, yes. Uh, I think, you know, now, do they necessarily need to put, maybe we do need to rethink the roles, and we need to think about things like tour, tour lengths, um, because I agree with you that particularly in the complex environments, you actually need people to stay longer, I not agree. shorter. Um, yep. And, you know, how you square that with people's, you know, family situations and whatnot, it's, it's a really... It's a complex thing, and uh, and I do think that we should that we should look into it. But but for the reasons, if we are, if we're saying that really the way that we're doing development now is partnerships, then I really believe that you have to have American development professionals be part of the the ecosystem that is developing and nurturing those partnerships. I mean, we ha nothing against our our Foreign Service National Staff, they're, they're amazing, right? And they have amazing local knowledge and, and expertise. Um, but you still need some people who have, are bringing their experiences from, from other places to bear in whatever situation that they're in. And that's, and, and also people that, that people in the country identify with as, you know, a representative of USAID. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate, but in most developing countries, you know, the, the, the minister is never going to see the, the, the FSN health officer as the spokesperson for USAID. Um, and so we do need foreign service officers. Now, whether we, I, I am totally supportive of rethinking what that role looks like, because realistically, even if we bring our hiring back up, you know, we're probably not ever going to get above what is it, eighteen hundred or something like that, which is which is the, um, you know, the the sort of target right now. Um, so, to regional missions, I think I believe in regional missions. I think regional missions are important because, in part, because they are the ones who work with regional institutions. Um, you know, my experience is mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you know. There's the capacity of regional institutions is all over the map, but in some places they're super important. In West Africa, you know, um, uh, ECOWAS, ECOWAS is really important. It's important. The African Union is doing some really interesting stuff. You know, they've now got this new um, uh, co comprehensive free trade um, CFTA thing for for Africa. You know, we need to um, fundamentally reevaluate our relationship with Africa. 
And we've got to look at what are the implications of that. So, and that means working with the AU. It means working with EGAD on, on you know, some of the resilience and conflict issues. So regional institutions are really important. They need a counterpart within USAID. And I think that the regional missions are, are you know, have developed some real expertise in working with regional institutions. And then, you know, I do believe that you can, that the model of, you know, service provision to um, bilateral missions, I mean, I know this is an ongoing forever debate within USAID, um, but, and sometimes it works better than others, but I don't really see us having an alternative because of the staffing situation. And then um, your question about how would I use $200 million? Oh boy. Uh, um, it would be a hard choice. Uh, I think probably my top uh, priority would be girls' education. Um, I just think, you know, particularly if you look in, in you know, sub-Saharan Africa, again, the, reason, the region that I have uh, done most of my uh, field work in, I mean, if we are not able to help girls, young women, um, realize their potential, um, their, their economic potential, not just their economic potential, but their social potential um, as, you know, full, empowered citizens, um, then, um, you We're know, that problems. is going to exacerbate Africa's, you know, situa difficulties on, on just a massive scale. So figuring out how do we, how do we develop girls, but also young men. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, young men are also important. Um, particularly in these areas where we have, you know, violent extremism coming up. Um, how do we build the skills um, and, um, and attitudes uh, that are going to be effective for um, the 21st century, for a digital age um, in Africa? That's how I would use the money. So there's going to be Can more? I oh, uh, aligning um, budget. Uh. Well, so here's where... F could play a productive role, but it doesn't seem to, um, because um, it. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. But okay, okay. I, yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, I mean, so I'm not going to. I I don't feel comfortable. I don't I don't know enough. I haven't been involved with F um, so recently, so I'm. I don't really feel comfortable talking about what the solution is of, with, in, with respect to aligning the development and the diplomacy budget. Um, but what I would say is, you know, one of the, we also have a challenge in terms of aligning our development budget with the strategies that we're doing. Um, this has been a long-standing thing, and um, you know, all the earmarking of the development budget. Um, or directing the development budget. Excuse me, not earmarking, um, and. I think that, well, the, the hope is that as we do some of these, or as you all do some of these, um, these self-reliance strategies, and we're able to go to Congress and say, okay, here's what the metrics are telling us about what these countries' um, most critical development challenges are, and here's the money that we have available, and here's how it doesn't match up then hopefully we'll be able to build a case over a body of a number of um, strategies to at least get some additional flexibility. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not real, you know, I'm not a 
starry-eyed enough to believe that the directing is going to go completely away. But I would hope that we can build up enough evidence um, from the strategic planning process to be able to make a case to the Hill that they should give us, at least let us try to have some additional flexibility to orient the resources, the funds towards the things that we are seeing are the most critical constraints in in our country strategies. And, you know, and then we see what the results of that are. So like give us a chance and then see how we do with it. And then if we do well, then they can give us some more flexibility. Um, I mean that's that's kind of one can hope. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I think should happen. All right. Please join me in thanking Susan. Thanks Susan. Good. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.